1: I'm privileged to have on Spirit in Action today the three people who were the central focus for planning this year's Earth Day celebration held in Owen Park. The Queen and Princess of Earth Day is Sarah Schmidt, who works at Beaver Creek Reserve. She's the Citizen Science Director at Beaver Creek. She was ably assisted by the two princes of Earth Day, Jim Phillips and Crispin Pierce. Jim is Associate Professor of Chemistry at UW-Eau Claire, and Crispin Pierce is Assistant Professor of Environmental Public Health at UW-Eau Claire. This is the second year that the Earth Day celebration has been held at Owen Park. It's a relatively new rebirth of an idea that goes back a few decades, but this year's was a tremendous success and growth over previous years. These three people all participated in last year's organization, along with a larger committee. They chose to streamline things, and with fewer people heading and assisted by lots of volunteers, they were able to make an amazing thing happen this year. Can you give me some idea of the full panoply of events that went on this year? Sarah?
2: Well, to start off with, there was live music all day, very excellent live music, and then guest speakers dispersed throughout the day as well. I'm talking about important environmental issues in this area and also in the greater Wisconsin region. In addition to that, we had a lot of nonprofit and for-profit exhibitors, about 40 total. And then we had a whole tent dedicated to children's activities, which was sort of a change from last year. And so um, it was nice to have this one entire tent dedicated to stuff for kids. Good food and just lots of fun. Um, Actually, it was really great also because the city foresters showed up and they planted an elm tree in Owen Park in honor of Earth Day 2006. Those are the main things that happened at Earth Day this year.
1: Do we have any idea what the turnout was this year compared to last year?
2: We're getting an estimate of approximately 600 people that showed up this year in comparison to approximately 200 last year, and there's no way to know for sure exactly how many people came, but we sort of base that off of food sales and things like that.
1: Now, we know one of the differences is that last year the temperature didn't rise much above 45 degrees, and so mainly it was just the polar bears or those with an extra inch of insulation on who were able to attend last year. So, Sarah, you were kind of heading this up this year, particularly, and you were a vital part of last year's organization. What led you to get involved in the Earth Day celebration?
2: Because I got the job at Beaver Creek as the citizen science director. And so by default, I became, you know, I was involved in the planning committee. In college, I was involved in planning a couple of special events, and so I really like doing it. And so I came to a couple of meetings, and after a while, I just said, all right, well, this is what we're going to do. It was good. It was, it was a good experience. But largely, I just sort of stumbled into it, but I'm glad I did.
1: Now you, Sarah, are in your mid-20s. That means that you were born after the original Earth Day happened almost a decade later. Uh, Jim, what led you to get involved in this uh, as our 30-something
3: one thing that inspired me was the 2003 celebration that was put on over at Rod and Gun Park. And that group tried to do this again in 2004 and ran out of steam for various administrative reasons. And my kids were really upset about it. They are like, there's not going to be any Earth Day this year. That's a terrible thing. And I said, well, next year I'll make sure that we get something together and get it happening. I knew Michelle Washabek, who was Meg Marshall's assistant out at Beaver Creek Reserve, Meg Marshall was Sarah's predecessor out there, and they came to me with this idea of hey, you know, you were talking about an Earth Day festival, and, you know, Beaver Creek Reserve might be willing to put this on. Started talking to them, sent out an email. Crispin was part of the conservationists, and this current group warmed up. And originally we tried to link up with that 2003 group and work together, and not many of those folks made it through to us just because I think they ran out of steam. At this point, I think I understand why. It's a big job. Uh, so, you know, but for me, it was really, my kids were really, I mean, uh, that my, my six year old daughter was in tears when she heard there wasn't going to be an earth day celebration. And I said, okay, we'll get this done.
1: I think Jim, that you must've had some previous routes to get them to the original earth day. What was it that attracted you to take your kids to the 2003 earth day? Have you been involved in earth day celebrations and planning before?
3: I'd never been involved in planning one, but where I went to college in Vermont, one of the great days every spring is that they would have a big Earth Day celebration on the campus green. Faculty would speak about environmental issues. They would have a big tug-of-war. There would be live music. It was a fun day, and you got to learn something. You know, And again, it was part celebration and part learning to appreciate the Earth and all the good things that go with it. And, you know, ever since I moved here and got involved with the campus environmental group, I was always talking, you know, does anybody ever do anything like this at Eau Claire? And if not, we should start doing it. And there was a lot of the UWEC conservationists involved in that 2003 group. I was their advisor at the time. I was a little too busy to help out a lot, but I was sort of looking on from a distance. And so it was really those years when I was in college that made sort of a strong impression on me that this was the right thing to do to kind of spread the message, especially to young people with a component of celebration and just to be happy about the planet and to celebrate it.
1: I had two more questions to follow up from Jim. One is, what college in Vermont were you going to that had this strong environmental focus? And the other one is, you're a professor of chemistry. Aren't the chemists the one who are supposed to be despoiling the environment?
3: The first question is easy. I went to Middlebury College in Middlebury, Vermont, which is a college which has a very strong environmental focus and has a big environmental studies program. I get your second question quite a bit, and what I would immediately say is that if chemistry is part of the problem, then chemistry also has to be part of the solution, because if we're making strange chemicals and putting them in the environment, then it's going to take chemistry to understand the problems that are caused by that you know, a lot of the environmental problems we have in this day and age take place on a global scale, specifically ozone depletion and climate change, which are probably my two areas of specialty in that respect. It's really about chemical change on a global scale. Is really the beginning and the middle and the end of the problem, maybe not the end. But certainly it stems from a chemist's viewpoint. Is actually pretty insightful, especially on these large-scale problems. I wish it wasn't possible for a chemist to see global-scale chemical change in the atmosphere and in the oceans, but unfortunately it is.
1: Let's turn to you, Crispin. You were involved both years in the planning. You're environmental public health at the university, and I think you worked in related fields before you came here. Why are you particularly connected to Earth Day and to caring for the Earth?
4: Well, this gives me an opportunity to uh, explore, teach, share the science that I learn and my students learn as part of environmental public health in a community. And we do have several wonderful communities here in Eau Claire. We have the university community, so I have students that are eager to learn and make a difference who are looking for a job. We have the social community. We see the same people over and over. I'll see Jim and Sarah maybe a couple times, at least during the summer, at events that we share, places that we celebrate downtown with the renewal of Phoenix Park, for example. Our kids are playing together in a central location. We all believe in things like smart growth. So with the opportunity to be a professional in environmental public health, I'm able to share what I've learned and learn in turn from my students at the university as we teach the kind of principles to talk about a sustainable environment. Jim and I will give guest lectures, for example, in each other's classes because Jim has a specialty in the chemical aspects and I have some specialty in the public health and environmental health aspects. So within the university, we have a wonderful community. We also have a community here in Eau Claire and in the Chippewa Valley in general of people who share a number of these same values. I'm just very excited to participate in both communities in this way.
1: Do you have a historical connection with Earth Day celebrations, previous locations?
4: Born and raised in Berkeley, California, I grew up with a global perspective, a perspective I certainly appreciate and wanting to pass on to my daughter, of respect for the Earth, of kind of acknowledgement of the kinds of things we've done. And I don't think that the buck stops with Jim in terms of chemists doing damage to the environment. It starts also with environmental health specialists. We have traditionally, as a profession, thought we have to be very, very clean. We have to be very controlled in the way that we interact with the environment. I think people like Jim and I are getting a greater understanding of how chemistry and biology and environmental public health make a difference and how we can look towards sustainable models. So indeed, growing up in Berkeley and finding out about numerous points of view, kind of a sustainable point of view, uh, really helped me in terms of adopting this kind of point of view, but also through my science, seeing that as we look for sustainable models of, as Jim mentioned, uh, climate change, ways in which we can reduce our emissions of carbon dioxide, we can preserve trees, we can look at sustainable models of agriculture. They all make sense to me, both as a scientist and somebody who grew up, I think, in a pretty open-minded environment.
1: Before this round of Earth Day celebrations originated in Eau Claire, there was a yearly celebration. It was normally held out at A1 Materials, was the sponsor, it was held out by their place. Did any of you have a problem with that symbolism of Earth Day, Jim?
3: I never attended any of those events firsthand. But my understanding was that there were speakers and symposia there that would talk about how hard rock mining was good for the environment, which, you know, as a chemist and an environmentalist is something I would take issue with, and that, you know, they would have bulldozer rides for the kids and push dirt around. So, I mean, I had some friends at work that were cynically referring to that as Earth Moving Day. And these wouldn't be real environmentalist types like myself, but more sort of regular mainstream people that were – in some respects, kind of you know, making fun of this in a real cynical way. And again, you, know, you might expect somebody like me to do that, but these were sort of way more mainstream people that had this attitude.
1: Jim, you used the phrase real environmentalists. I, I'm not trying to pick nits here. I am truly trying to focus in on what makes a person environmentalist, what's important about it, what is important in the worldview of a person to be an environmentalist as opposed to someone who's into an earth-moving day. Crispin?
4: Sure. I think environmentalist is somebody who is uh, in touch with some deep roots, somebody who's really connected to his or her environment, has an understanding of the way in which we interact with the environment, how the environment supports us. Somebody who's thought about the kinds of difficult changes to see that Jim alluded to earlier in the atmosphere and the sea, somebody who has um, thought a little bit and become educated about the kinds of changes that are going on and how he or she understands their own imprint, but I also believe for myself, I think for most people, would call themselves environmentalists, there's a real spiritual connection. There's a sense of how I am connected to the earth. I came from the earth. I will, I will die to the earth. We were at the Green Energy Expo at the Cities last weekend. and We were looking at an exhibit for how to get buried. And I was talking with my daughter, and we were talking about what happens, that all things die. I think her having the understanding that at one day, Daddy's going to die and go to the earth. And we talked about the bugs that are going to eat away at my body and how I will go back and replenish the earth with my dying. I think that's that kind of spiritual connection that, for me, really is part of the definition of somebody who's an environmentalist.
1: Sarah?
2: In a very um, general sense, I think being an environmentalist requires having a greater sense of time and space rather than the here and now. All too often, I mean, we think that right now being here is the most important thing that's happening, and you often forget that uh, there are 6 billion people going about their daily lives in the world, So I think that's important to just not forget that the here is not the most important thing and the now is not the most important thing. And there's an Iroquois, Native American tribes, Iroquois, their practice was that when they made a decision, that decision was good if in seven generations it was good. And we don't do that now. And so I think that's a huge way to think environmentally as well.
5: Once, we were lonely islands, divided by horizons. A hundred thousand tribes surviving, scattered far and wide. Hearing only stories of distant territories. Peering out across the miles between our shores. Then we harnessed nature's forces straddled backs of forces waging wars and crossing borders as our numbers We bought and sold and traded Oceans were navigated Fates entwined by rails and roads and telephones and spring. Cracked code of flight spoke via satellite at the speed of light And now speeding feeling like a small town with six billion people downtown at a little sidewalk Filled with gasoline from Saudis to Australians sipping Kenyan coffee in their Chinese shoes Argentines are meeting Mongols Over French fries at McDonald's And the place looks strangely tiny when you see it from There's music in the park and guitars, bagpipes, and sittars now. It's feeling like a small town. With six billion people downtown. Even Babel can't compare Hour goes by, ten thousand more arrive, and the din gets louder on Main Street, where you can watch downtown.
3: I think you hit on the key point when you use the word care. The common theme that you have amongst all environmentalists, broadly defined, is that they care about the planet and that they want to make it better one way or another, and/or stop its degradation. One of the things that I've learned, both through being a scientist at UWEC and through working in this community, is that what it means to be environmental or what environmentalism is is a very personal thing. And different people have very different views on what is environmental. A chemist looks at the environment and sees chemical change and pollution, and a conservation biologist sees habitat and habitat lost, and a guy from environmental public health sees, you know, the human contact. And you might ask, you know, which one of those is it? Well, and the answer is yes. I mean, we all have our own little realm that's important to us, but ultimately I think it's the word care. This first became apparent to me when I took a college course, which was actually in religion, where we talked about environmental degradation, and it finally drove home to me that it was this spiritual connection that one has with the planet, or lacks, and that it's easy to degrade the planet when you don't see yourself as integrated in part of a larger system, and that when there's a spiritual disconnect between people and the environment or people on the earth, that it's a lot easier to degrade. So I think the caring and the spiritual connection is probably the one common theme that runs through all different kinds of environmentalists.
1: Sarah?
2: Just a spin off of the caring thing. I went to hear Tia Nelson speak, Gaylord Nelson's daughter, Tia Nelson. And one of the things she said at the end of her talk, and she didn't say this to the whole group, but she would talk to people individually after her address to the crowd and she said, thanks for caring. And she said that more than once. And I really liked that. And I sort of took that away from that. And I think it's important to just say thanks for caring to people.
1: I think we probably do injustice to people when we demonize them too much. I'm assuming there's all kinds of people who do not share my environmental views who have just balancing views that they see as more important. For instance, they may think, I really need to protect my job. If I don't have food to feed my children, they're not even going to be able to worry about whether the ozone layer is going to be disappearing and then leaving them exposed. So in your experiences, and all three of you have face-to-face with the public, what are the issues that people seem to have that tear them away from being real environmentalists? Crispin?
4: I think it's a very good question, Mark. Some of the primary feeders that drive people that lack of that touch lack of that caring that spiritual connection really have to do with things that seem to be revolving around survival when people feel their job is threatened or their family is threatened or the when their religion is threatened i think sadly there's a lot of that kind of fear in our society these days driven in part by politics me too if my family was threatened i would stand up and, and fight in any way i thought necessary but I don't need to do that. And there's rare, rare times in our society and our culture we need to fight that hard for things. And ultimately, um, Sarah talked about the Iroquois beliefs. there are many spiritual beliefs that talk about a sustainable Earth, a sustainable planet. And within the Old Testament and, and citations within the New Testament are talking about having dominion over the Earth, but that has been interpreted by a lot of environmentalists as caring for the Earth, looking towards of a long-term sustainable future. So my religion has to do with caring for the Earth. My family has to do with caring for the earth. My job, and I know the sustainable future, has to do with caring for the earth. So I think when we stop and we let the rhetoric of Fox News and CNN go a little bit past our heads and we sit down and think about what the realities are, we find that the the important values to us as a society of jobs, of family, of sustainability, of health, really are imbued with care for the
1: earth. Sarah? Sarah?
2: I think just everyday drama gets in the way. I know, especially when you're talking about somebody who's sort of my age, 20s-ish. I deal with peers and I try and talk to them. And what I'm hearing a lot is, you got to get the job to get the stuff to live happily. And that's just sort of how it is in our society. That's sort of what's ingrained in your head. And That's not everybody, of course, but I think we just get too caught up in the drama and the here and the now and it keeps us from those more important, larger questions that need to be addressed, larger issues that we need to deal with. Jim? I guess I
3: have to admit that my views on this are probably a little bit more cynical than my colleagues here. I think the root of the problem is materialism and people ultimately thinking more about themselves than anybody else. And the root of that is who knows what. But I think that there's a major misconception in our society that fuels this and that is, in the words of David Orr, whose book I just read, called Earth and Mind, is making a distinction between maximum and optimum. An American society is based on maximum. And a more sustainable way of living would be based on what's optimum. And that is, you know, from economics, economics can mean growth by default. And Americans have this faith that economic growth is good, all growth is good, unrestrained growth is even better, more growth is better, bigger pie, more for everybody. But I think if we were to think about economics and its more academic definition, which is a system by which goods and services are delivered to the people and hopefully in an equitable manner, that that would be closer to optimum. And I just think that the American dream, unfortunately, gets in the way of seeing this clearly.
1: You all talked in one way or another about the here and now versus the big picture. I heard an interesting reverse take on it about 20 years ago when James Watt was the Secretary of Interior at that point. He was trying to sell off national parks, and when asked, don't we have to keep this for future generations, he said, no, because Jesus is coming again soon, and there's going to be no need to have the parks in the future. We might as well get rid of them and take advantage of it right now. So he was going beyond the immediate now to here's the big picture as he perceived it. Any reactions to that kind of worldview? Jim.
3: I certainly wouldn't want to be the person that had to face Jesus after we sold off all the national parks.
1: In Quakers, we say, that friend speaks my mind. <laughs> Crispin, you may even remember when that hullabaloo hit the news.
4: I think it's a sad situation. There's certainly room for those kinds of voices in our society, but there's room for other voices ways in which we can say that that really isn't the kind of view that most people in this country share, that we don't need to plan for Armageddon, need to plan for a sustainable future.
1: Obviously, the three of you put a significant amount of energy into making Earth Day celebration happen this year. What did you hope would come of this celebration? In what ways do you hope that it changes or directs the world? Jim?
3: There's two basic things for me. One is is that I would like to see Earth Day recognized as a regular holiday in which the community gets together to celebrate just like we get together for the 4th of July and just like we get together for Labor Day and Memorial Day. And Earth Day should be on par with those kinds of things that are public holidays. You know, Christmas, Thanksgiving, things like that are things maybe we spend more with our families. The other thing, and maybe this is really idealistic in my part, is that In the last five years or so in this community, I have really seen the progressive community start to rise to the surface, and that, you know, a lot of us have always been around here. You know, we all used to know who each other were, and we would talk to each other, but now we're getting really public. You're seeing visibility events, we see a daily peace rally, things like this, where people are starting to stand up for a certain set of values, which hasn't been prevalent in this community. An Earth Day is really a friendly sort of mainstream take on this, where we bring the whole community together. It's right near downtown Eau Claire, and we're really trying to network with local businesses and things like this and get them involved in it and really try to couple the spiritual values that go along with this into the sort of changing nature of the city that values its downtown and the spirituality and the environmentalism and the economics and the sort of changing face of this community I think are all coupled into this and we'd like to be part of that bigger picture and I I think we are.
1: Crispin? I'm going to let Sarah speak.
2: So there. (laughs) I think what I'd like to see us do better is seeing more of the general public down there, not just sort of those of us who already care, but try to figure out ways to attract those who maybe care but they don't quite know it yet and somehow get them down there so that you can plant the seed of, okay, well, if you you already recycle, maybe you should consider composting too, just little things like that. So I think we need to try and reach that crowd for future Earth Days.
1: Crispin?
4: I like very much what Sarah said. I think it makes a lot of sense. And really, there's a lot in us that is already environmentalists. We have people who love to hunt, love to fish here in Wisconsin, really appreciate the outdoors. People who want to have trees near their houses. People want their kids to be healthy. People who don't want to have these little signs on their lawn that say pesticides applied, no kids need play here. I think we have a lot of shared environmental values. Jim alluded to a number of them. Well, people really care about the downtown community, care about just local food and about the downtown cinema, about the children's museum, people who really see this as a viable and growing community. So I share Sarah's aspirations. I think that to discover a little bit more about the marmalist in all of us, kind of a curious thing did happen at Earth Day for me. One of my colleagues from the School of Nursing was staffing our first aid booth, and she was concerned about the tree trimming that happened in her neighborhood. Well, Todd Kuala, who is the new city arborist, was there, so I invited her to complain to Todd. Now, Todd's an environmentalist in a way, too. He cares for our urban forestry, but he also has responsibilities for keeping power lines clear. So the two of them had a good conversation, both environmentalists, both caring about our environment. And so to make those connections, to expand those connections, are really, I think, goals we all have for making our Earth Day even more inclusive and broadening its appeal to
1: the entire community. I wanted to jump in and second jim 's notion that Earth Day should be a primary holiday i 'm aware for me that it has a special place in my connection to entirety of life in a way that some other holidays do not, and that i 'm also for changing my life energy so that I give more energy to the holidays that speak of my values, speaking of that relationship to the big ideas to what some people call God. I'm wondering if I can encourage you to maybe not engage in theological debate here, but to just share some ideas that you have of how we relate to one another, to other species, to other plants, animals, the earth. What concept do you have of how we are connected? Why we're connected? Are we just simply specks of dust occupying similar place in space? Or is there some meaning beyond that that you see that connects all of us? Crispin?
4: Mark, I see God every day. And I take a vol in the backyard, my six-year-old daughter in the backyard, and we see God every day. We see the gnats that were buzzing around the building where I work. And we talked about that they'll they'll be passed on in 24 hours. She asked where the gnats go. She asked where the cat that died in our arms went, and we buried the cat. So for me, God is very, very present in the trees and the decomposing body and the ants and my beautiful six-year-old daughter and and when I get to dance. There's just many ways in which we see God and have a, a very visceral and complete experience of God.
1: Sarah?
2: I'm still struggling with this one, and not because I don't believe in some supreme being or something greater than us. I think that I've come to the conclusion that the time that I feel most close to my spiritual self. And this might sound cliche, but it truly is when I have time to sit alone and think. And the time when that happens and the time when it's most uh, productive is when I'm backpacking because you're alone and there's nobody around and there's no disruptions and you're sitting outside and it doesn't really get any better than that. And so it's a really good time to reflect. And I think that's when I feel closest to those types of things. But when I say I'm struggling, it's just I haven't quite found my niche yet, but I'm okay with that. I think just basically it's important to care and to have a greater sense of just, like I said, this greater idea of the here and now, or greater than the here and now, and think beyond that. And then just look out for your fellow people. Take care of them. I learned this interesting definition of community relatively recently it's sort of all the Leopold's take on community. And that is community is not just people. If you ask people what a community is, they're going to start out probably by telling you it's a gathering of people and blah, 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 blah. This is a very radical notion, but thinking of community, not as just us as people, but other animals, plants, and not just animals and plants, but what about the soil bacteria? What about the just bacteria that live, you know, in our bodies and whatnot? And, Yes, it's very radical and very sort of difficult for a lot of people to grasp, but it makes sense to me. Jim's ready.
3: Spirituality in the traditional Christian sense has always been a little difficult for me, mainly due to some marginal experiences growing up. And, you know, maybe going off to college to be a scientist and getting into that as a naive 18 year old thinking that you're learning the truth and that science is the truth and has all the answers. And, you know, it takes a few years to get past that. Where I really sort of found. My spirituality in the literal sense is when I learn more about Eastern philosophies, and the key thing in those is the connectedness, the way everything is a big web and everything gains its essence from its relationship to everything else. When this really hit home for me when it came to environmentalism was how this train of thought applies to ecological thinking in communities and how all the creatures in a community are related to each other and gain their life energy from their relationship to everything else and they don't necessarily have this on their own, essentially selflessness. Leopold would even extend this to the rocks and all the non-living things. And, you know, as a chemist, you know, I can see all the molecules out there and how they sort of all connect with one another and how the energy flows through everything. To me, it's just a holistic worldview, and being connected to nature as a, as a human being just fits right into that whole picture. My spiritual beliefs were really honed through being out in the woods and looking around and seeing how I connect to everything, whether I'm just walking around or whether I'm trying to convince a trout that my fly is real. To a certain extent, in a lot of the improvisational music that I've played, it's the same kind of thing, where all the instruments come together to make a whole and not any one of them sort of works in and of itself. And I think viewing yourself as part of the natural community that way is only natural once I've come to that way of thinking.
5: In river town and on that street is mary's house by the house is a deep ravine and running there is a magic stream laughing over the sand and rocks it runs the length of mary's block another mile to the riverside and a thousand more to the ocean wide One day by the water Mary lay Put her hand in the shallow stream And Mary had a magic dream She imagined that inside her Stirred all the waters of the earth Every puddle, every creek And every one of the seven seas She could feel. And in her chair Dream that day. People say that Mary's changed, but they sympathize when they suppose it must be strange to be the ocean. She senses when the salmon swim and hurricanes lick her skin. Asia tickles her left arm and the moon above tugs her heart. Her front is day, her back is night. She recollects the dawn of life. Tidal waves run up her spine and lightning tingles when it strikes. She can feel the fishes roll In her fingers and her toes And in her chest this happens so it seems because of mary's magic stream but some will say that lakes and wells and even rain can cast a spell and every water drop you ask tells a tale of oceans vast so careful when you take a drink cause there's magic in the kitchen sink
1: definitely heard some people who refer to themselves as christians maybe fundamentalist christians who disparage people who kind of worship earth goddess type ways of thinking have you had to deal with that kind of tension in your lives the people who said well if you're religious you're not supposed to worship the earth you're supposed to worship god and do you have to deal with that out at Deaver Creek, for instance, Sarah, or do you have students who come in, Crispin, who say, I can't think these thoughts because they run into my religious beliefs, that the universe is people-centered, and therefore the universe has to revolve around the earth. The earth can't be spinning through space. Crispin?
4: You know, at the university, we stay away from opinion. It's not something we teach. We teach science. We teach basic philosophy. We teach a liberal arts education. We ask students to try on different points of view. So I will present my students the facts on global warming, for example, or sea level change, loss of species, and I'll allow them to begin to see where their values fit and how this fits or doesn't fit with their values. I am excited, though, Mark, that recently there have been groups of evangelical Christians who see global warming, for example, as a real threat to human value. The people are now starting to die through spread of disease and loss of the habitat, loss of farms where they work, loss of their communities. So I'm really quite excited to see part of the Christian evangelical community look at the environment as something that protects and supports people. And so religion can also do that, to care for God's creation. So I'm excited to see some of those voices now come from very traditional Christian communities. Jim?
3: You know, I've seen remarkably little of the sort of adverse viewpoint regarding staunch Christian beliefs at the university. I might be a little bit more forward than Crispin in my classes. When I teach a class on climate, I'll go through the science when we get to the end and say, okay, here we are, it's a moral decision. What are your morals? We've just confronted the science. Okay, there's some uncertainty in the science. Here's here's what you get from science. Now it's time to make a judgment and you need to weigh your values to make the judgment, and you need to nurture your values to make that judgment. And I'll be very upfront about it. I've never encountered any resistance to that. I've never endorsed any particular value system to come to that, but I've said, you know, now it's time for you to be an educated person, and one of the things you need to do as an educated person is to develop that value system and be ready to use it.
1: What is that value system based on? That is to say, do you just pick your values out of the air, or where do they derive from? I ask this in part because one of the big questions for me is, if we kill another species, let's say we you know exterminate this species of whale, or we do get rid of this species of fish, or maybe we kill all of the mosquitoes in the world. I know that there are implications to our life. That is to say, when you kill one species, it affects another species, it affects a habitat, and pretty soon it affects us. But if people weren't on the earth, if there weren't people here at all, would it still matter if a species was wiped out? Is there some value that transcends the benefit of Homo sapiens? Jim?
3: I guess I'd pick up on Sarah's theme from before and divert to Leopold here, who said, you know, absolutely. The mosquitoes have value, the rocks have value, the land itself has inherent value. And I just think that for me, it's just like you wouldn't harm another person or anything else, that it's just a matter of expanding your circle of those things which deserve an ethical treatment. And for me, it only seems natural to treat all things equal, living and non-living, at least as much as possible. I mean, that's an ideal to strive for anyway.
1: Does that mean it's the same moral question whether you eat a cow or whether you eat a person?
3: I suppose not, but certainly I do think that whether you're eating a cow or not is a moral question that you should answer. I mean, I had a hamburger for dinner tonight, but you know, when I talk to my kids about this, I make sure that you know they understand what they're eating and that you need to understand your impact and that if you're going to eat animals, that it's not something that came in a package at the grocery store, that this was a living thing. And if you can't accept that, then you shouldn't be doing it. And like I said, I'm okay. I hunt animals and catch fish And eat them. But I think there's a certain amount of remorse that goes with that. I just think just doing it blindly and saying that didn't matter. It was just a grouse and I just ate it is kind of shallow. When I'm out in the woods hunting, I view it as this deeply spiritual experience where I'm out there connecting with nature and, you know, I get to be a predator for a few hours and it's very rare that I actually ever get anything, so the moral dilemma is very minimal in my sense. But me, i see it as being part of the process, you know, and some people are saying, wait a second, you're an environmentalist and you'll go out and hunt, but I think harvesting game isn't anywhere near as much of a detriment as agriculture is, and with all due respect to the farmers out there, I think, you know, everybody's going to weigh their impact and almost everything we do has an impact of one form or another, and I think it's easy to get hung up on the impact that you have on an individual. You know, if you chop down that tree to make paper or you shoot the animal to eat it, that there you see in a, a specific individual loss of life. But I think in the more holistic sense, you know, driving our car and using a lot of disposable stuff is probably more detrimental in the bigger picture, but a lot harder to see. It takes a lot more effort to sort of view the impact of that.
1: Crispin?
4: I think we see those kind of values in, frankly, in pets, is what I think of, using an example of having to bury our little kitty. I think people can relate to that, animals that are within their house. The cats and dogs we have, D'Artagnan might... big, big, hundred-pound guy who licks everybody to death, we relate to that in a very clear way. We care for those animals. I think the kind of extension of that loving and caring and seeing the connectedness is what really environmentalism is all about. So at a very personal level, the kind of pets we have in our house, at a broader level, Jim talked about the trees, the the species we hunt and fish, and even broader way, I like the way Jim put it, we're talking about having effects on all the organisms in the world, loss of species every 20 minutes, and and to really evaluate how we feel about that. difference that makes if that's truly where we want to go what impact we
1: have are all essential questions chris when you just mentioned about loss of species i had a question posed to me and i'm hoping someone here can answer it we can talk about the fact that, that dinosaurs died off in essence that there's major species that have been exterminated in the past i'm trying to think of one that we could name a significant species that has been exterminated in the last 50 years the logo for the state in which I was born, California, the grizzly bear is
4: extinct. The flag that's flown in California all over the, the state, that species of grizzly bear is extinct. Yep. It's a very sad story. A species that represented kind of the frontier, the Old West, uh, is no longer with us. I think it's a very sad, sad statement.
1: Sarah?
2: This is probably kind of a funny answer, but I think of the passenger pigeon right away (laughs) because it's a good example of this super abundant species that people talked about that would fly in flocks overhead and and block the sun, and people just felt the need to kill, kill, kill until they were gone. But that's one that I think of right away because it was sort of ingrained as a kid when they're teaching about species extinction. It's kind of the poster bird, if you will, of the extinct species. Jim? As I
3: sat and tried to think of an answer to this, fortunately all I could think of were a lot of success stories where a lot of animals were pushed to the brink of extinction and we have sort of maintained that or averted a disaster. Unfortunately, a lot of the species that are going extinct are, for lack of a better term, maybe minor things that we don't notice. In other words, if the bald eagle went extinct, everybody would notice right away because it's a top dog predator. And a lot of these species that are going extinct seem insignificant, But the key thing I think that people don't understand, if I can just make a purely scientific comment here, was that the more species that we have on the planet, the more resiliency and stability there is for life as a whole. And with each species we lose, the world as a whole, or at least the animal and plant communities, become more fragile. And as those communities become more fragile, the whole system becomes more fragile. So the things that seem insignificant are by no means insignificant.
1: I was just wondering if the three of you would be willing to share a little of your religious spiritual background. In particular, I want to know if there's something in your background which upheld, encouraged your spiritual religious devotion to the earth, the caring that I've heard you speak about, or if there's something that was lacking in that religious environment such that you had to leave it because it could no longer encompass the bigger heart that you were feeling. Sarah?
2: Well, I was raised Catholic, and my whole family practices Catholicism. I even went to a couple sort of Bible camp retreats in high school. So I feel like I gave it a good go, you know? So I I feel like I really, really thoroughly explored that religion. And ultimately I came to the conclusion, and I think probably in college just through the more I learned— the less I felt like I could fit in that particular religion. And by no means am I saying anything negative about that particular religion at all because my entire family is Catholic. (laughs) And it's interesting, and I've gotten into discussions with my family about it. They never try and change my mind, nor do they argue with me, but it's just a sort of sharing of ideas. And I think they can respect what I've come to. So I think for me, it just didn't work. Like I said, I'm still trying to find my niche or what it is that I believe in. But I think sort of my education in science and being a biologist didn't jive with that particular belief system for me. A friend of mine once said, look, there's a bajillion ways to get from here to there, there being heaven or what some people call heaven or whatever you want to call it. And the bottom line is, as long as you're a good person along the way, then there's no reason to give people a higher time for what they believe.
1: Jim?
3: You know, my background in formal religion is extremely limited. I was raised in an Episcopalian family. My family stopped going to church when I was seven years old. Religion really did not play a major part in my family life growing up at all. And then again, going off to study science in college and sort of being naive about that, it didn't seem like those kinds of things had a place in my life. And you'll probably discover them in hindsight through pursuing the scientific and musical sides of things where you start to study science and you realize that, well, when you get in there deep enough into physics, well, all the answers aren't there, and it starts to get closer to theology than you think it does. All the postmodern views of science all start from a mechanistic worldview, which through logic and purely non-spiritual things get led around to this holistic worldview. You know, in biology, taxonomy from the 19th century becomes ecology in the 20th century, and in physics, classical physics of the 18th century, you know, becomes quantum physics, which has very unknowable spiritual parts to it in the 20th century. These are the things that maybe opened my mind to spirituality, and it was at this point where I actually started taking then courses in college and religion. So, you know, maybe my whole experience is backwards in this respect. Crispin?
4: I think I may feel the same kind of, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Jim, but awkwardness or discomfort. I had a very similar background with a Protestant upbringing until I was about seven years old, and things didn't fit. Um, I had to imagine a face of God and of Jesus Christ, and of apostles, and of of Mary and Mary Magdalene, and and all the images, and, and it truly became an issue of faith. And it didn't fit for me, as Sarah had mentioned also. I started becoming involved with education and finding out more about science, finding more about the environment, about biology and biochemistry, and about environmental health. It became alive, really in the middle of my life. In my 30s, I started to see the connectedness. I started to see the ways I could experience God firsthand, and that became very real. So I don't know that I would say nature is my religion per se, but certainly it's a way in which I feel connected and can have an active day-to-day experience of religion in seeing how things change, seeing how I can make a difference, seeing how my beautiful daughter grows up, seeing how the wildlife pond we dug two days ago is starting to have little skeeter bugs. The ways in which I see things happen, it becomes very, very real for me, and so I believe that is a fundamental um, principle of my faith.
1: I'm pretty sure for all three of you that your devotion to caring for the earth does not end with planning and putting on the earth day celebration. I know a couple things about you, but I want to invite you to jump in and say, how are you living out and making a difference caring for the world? How are you building this bigger sense of connection in the world? Crispin, I wanted to ask you, there was an ordinance that you helped participate in getting passed. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
4: I'm really excited about this ordinance. It's a provision to the wheat ordinance that allows people to choose to plant native grasses, forbs, and shrubs, as opposed to lawns. Lawns are very, very expensive environmentally. Economically, it's about $400 an acre to maintain. It a lot of noise and pollution, a lot of problems. So now the city of Eau Claire has an option for people who, like myself, want to plant a beautiful native prairie landscape. It's going to be small. It's going to look a little messy for the first year or two, but it gives... All of us an opportunity to have a, a lower maintenance and very beautiful yard. Something that will support butterflies and well, mosquitoes the first year, but the second year, uh, mosquitoes are taken care of by other species. Provide bird habitat. We've got in the yard now. My daughter identifies the chickadees and the song sparrows for me. So, this kind of opportunity not only is it ecologically sound, but it's really motivated by the city. They don't want to have to keep giving people citations for not cutting their lawns above seven inches. So it makes sense economically, environmentally, and as a culture, we have more options.
1: In the ordinance that was passed, is there a permit process you have to go through, or will the city just recognize that the things that are growing in your yard are acceptable weeds?
4: Well, there's been some training of of city staff, which I think are doing a, a wonderful job. So if there's a complaint by a neighbor, the city staff will come by and take a look at it. If they believe that there is a violation of the ordinance, if grasses are longer than seven inches and really aren't being cared for, they will contact the homeowner. At that point, the homeowner needs to make a case, say, well, I am transitioning over to my native grasses, and this is what I'm doing to do that. Upon that review, the violation will be lifted. The city is certainly not interested in giving a free pass to uh, folks who just don't want to mow their lawn, so certainly that will continue to be enforced. But for people who really are looking to provide a better habitat or are going to do some native plantings, this is an opportunity to work with the city to provide a, a more beautiful
1: natural landscape. What are you doing out there at Beaver Creek, Sarah, besides planning Earth
2: Day? The overall slogan for Beaver Creek Reserve, generally speaking, is connecting people with nature. And I see that done on a daily basis in spring because we have busloads of kids come out there (laughs) every day. And our naturalists do a wonderful job working with those children, doing activities outdoors and teaching them why animals do the certain things that they do. So I think just generally that's Beaver Creek Reserve's slogan. But the Citizen Science Center specifically, what we do is we sort of act as a connection between professionals at the university, at the DNR, We're the connection between those folks and then your average citizen who wants to get involved and do something and how about. And I have some amazing volunteers that are dedicating a huge chunk of their summer to do stream monitoring, for example. The monitoring that they're doing is actually they're collecting data that can be utilized by the DNR, for example. It's really a fulfilling thing to be doing because you're getting people out there and they're getting out in the field and they're collecting valuable data, but at the same time they're reporting back and saying, It's really amazing to watch how a stream changes over five months. You go out once a month from May to September, and the amount of change that happens in those five months is really incredible. And so people are are finding their own connections or rekindling connections that they once had with nature.
1: Jim? Jim?
3: I think, in the most pragmatic sense, one of the things I've tried to do is really get some courses going in environmental chemistry at UWEC, which were non-existent before I got there. I was pretty adamant about getting them started, and lo and behold, I had two or three colleagues that immediately jumped off the bench and said, "Hey, I want to do this too." And I think that's particularly significant because you know chemistry is a real strong program at UWEC and really well respected. But the sort of underlying political feel of the program when I got there was the chemical industry is great, everything the chemical industry does is great, the oil companies are great, we're all great, yay to the American Chemical Society. And that's changing a lot, and it's changed a lot in my department. I think that's a productive thing. Probably the biggest pragmatic contribution I make to this is through my job as an educator and trying to get students to think about this. You know, in terms of my personal actions, I would say that in terms of being environmentalist, I would still characterize myself as in something of a state of recovery. And that, you know, and this is what I tell people in my classes, the first important thing here is that you understand what your impacts are and that just like when you're about to go on a diet, these changes that you need to make in your lifestyle to stabilize the climate or whatever are not easy choices to make. But the first thing you need to do is identify the changes you need to make and then work on them and feel a little guilt when you're not doing such a good job of working on them. So in that respect, especially being interested in climate, I still don't walk to work every day, and I still turn up my furnace when I'm cold, and I still mow my lawn, although I don't put chemicals on my lawn, Crispin. <laughs> and, you know, I try to do the best thing I can, but I think what I'm getting at here is I would encourage everybody out there to avoid the pressure of perfectionism. Among a lot of the environmentalists I know, there's a bit of an extremism out there that says, okay, now you're environmentalists, you never eat meat, you never drive, you never do anything bad. And I just, you know, we need to be not judgmental of other people and more importantly, not judgmental of ourselves and try to improve ourselves a little bit every day and do the best job we can and not be so hard on us when we decide, okay, we drove an extra few miles. The key thing is accepting the fact that driving those few extra miles was a bad decision and be a little bit more patient with yourself when it comes to sort of turning that around and doing it. So, again, As an environmentalist, I'm still in a state of recovery.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I was just wondering, is Earth Day celebration going to happen next year, too? Sarah?
2: The answer is most definitely yes. We're actually having a meeting in a couple weeks here to go over what was good, what we could improve on from this last Earth Day, maybe even get a timeline together for Earth Day 2007. Yep, we'll be there.
1: Jim?
3: Absolutely. It was a lot easier to do the second time than it was the first time. And if there's anybody out there that's interested in helping with next year's Earth Day celebration, because we can always use more people that are willing to take something on and organize it, and there are facets of this event that we'd really like to add to it that Sarah and Crispin and I do not have the stamina to take on ourselves, so you know how to reach us either at the university or through Wise Radio or wherever. Track us down, and we'd love to have your help.
1: Actually, it'd probably help if we did have a website and or email that people could direct themselves to. So, Jim, how would they get in hold of you?
3: Find the chemistry department homepage at uwec.edu, go to faculty, and find Jim Phillips, and there's a link to my email.
1: Sarah, are you reachable?
2: Yes, and my email is sarah at beavercreekreserve.org. So that's Sarah, S-A-R-A, at beavercreekreserve, which is all one word, dot O-R-G.
1: Crispin, did you want to stay anonymous?
4: No, I'd love to have contact with folks. And as Jim said, we would love to have more and more people at this event. I'm reachable through the Environmental Public Health Program webpage at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. My email address is piercech, P-I-E-R-C-E-C-H, at uwec.edu.
1: Thanks to all three of you for making sure that this really high-quality Earth Day celebration happened this year. Thank you for guaranteeing it into the future. I think you're making a difference for the world, definitely for our kids, and definitely for the city of Eau Claire.
2: Thank you for having us, Mark.
4: Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Mark.
1: You've been listening to a Spirit in Action interview with the organizers of this year's 2006 Earth Day celebration in Owen Park, Sarah Schmidt, Crispin Pierce, and Jim Phillips. You can hear this interview again via my website, northernspiritradio.org where you'll also find additional information about the program and links about this and other programs. Music featured on this program has included two songs by Peter Mayer, Earth Town Square and Ocean Mary. The theme music for Spirit in Action is I Have No Hands But Yours by Carol Johnson. Thank you for listening. I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit you can email me at helpsmeet at usa.net. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action.
0: I have no higher call for you than this To love and serve your neighbor In selflessness To love and serve your neighbor and joy in selflessness. Mm-hmm.